Well, welcome, Lovers of Product. Today, I am here with John Cutler, a friend of mine, a product management guru, and an all-around great guy. So, John, why don't you give us a little overview of your background to kick this off? Sure. Great to chat with you, Eric. You were just out here in Santa Barbara, so that was cool. We were just hanging out on my deck a couple weeks ago, so that was fun. Thanks for having me on. So, a little bit about my background. I spent my 20s, I had a video game startup and got distracted playing a lot of music and traveling around the United States in vans and did that for a while and then tried to take my 30s a little bit more seriously. So, did a number of product management roles and business analyst roles and consulting roles. And tried another couple startups in my 30s, for better or for worse. None of them really worked out. And then, you know, most recently, I actually did a stint at Pendo. I've been worked at Zendesk, a company here in Santa Barbara called Appfolio. It's really interesting B2B real estate sort of property management software. And yeah, and then recently have a newborn and just doing more consulting now and coaching. I do a fair amount of kind of product manager coaching, especially for junior PMs who are sort of trying to get up to speed in, in large orgs. Yeah, and I've, I've definitely seen a lot of traffic on, on your Twitter account, on, on your writings. You got a huge shout out at Industry from one of the speakers there as a resource. It was like all these big resources and anything John Cutler writes. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was I, actually I, super I, scared by that, you know, because <laughs> like sometimes I'm writing, it's 2 a.m. in the morning and the baby's crying and I don't really edit. I mean, if I edited this stuff, I would never be able to put it all out. So it's very, you know, it's pretty raw. So that goes with a big footnote for that person. Like, you know, maybe call me for it. Like, if, like, don't, you know, beware a little bit to do that. But yeah. Well, I think that's what a lot of people like. I mean, it is, it is raw. It's your thoughts. It's kind of, I don't, I don't want to say it's unpolished, but it's authentic, right? And I think that resonates with a lot of people that are in it day to day, whether in leadership positions or, you know, more tactically. I think there's an authenticity that doesn't have a, a marketing polish on top of it that people greatly enjoy. So, and, and you write a lot about product management and the evolving role of the product manager. So could you talk to us a little bit about that and specifically that the evolving role of the product manager and how you see that changing? Sure. I think that stepping back, you have to view it in the context of just technology and culture and our you know, interaction with technology. And this all kind of bubbles into the PM role. So you start to see a great example is B2B software, right? So it's heavily B2C influence now at this moment, right? So the bar is being set higher and higher and higher. You have more products which are basically rented, right? Because the technology allows you to kind of deliver those types of products really quickly and iterate really quickly. And then you see obviously mobile stuff or you see other things. So I think that the role is changing to kind of match these changes. And so a perfect example is in like a large software as a service company, let's just take Zendesk when I worked at Zendesk. And so can you imagine like 100,000 plus customers running parts of their business off of this thing? It's one piece of software delivered to 100,000 people, basically. And then you have maybe 10 plus touch points or more, 15 or 20 plus touch points across all of the Zendesk products. And on top of that, you have these different personas involved and you've got a huge team and a multinational team. And so in that context, in that sort of service delivery context, what is the product even, right? So is Zendesk itself the product? Are the individual touch points the product? Is the mobile SDK a product or is it a service or is it? So I think that the example that I'm, I'm trying to explain with that is that just all the technology changes that made something like a Zendesk possible to deliver that type of software to that many people also shapes the product management role. So what you start to see are things like it moves from sort of project-based to value stream-based, or you see things like kind of very touchpoint thinking to ecosystem thinking, or you're working in a highly networked environment. So it changes what influence means in the organization. You might not, you might own quote unquote your own product, but you have to interface with lots of different people. So, I mean, I'll pause for a second, but that's kind of, how I would see it moving. You just see technology changing and you see the types of businesses changing and then you see product management changing to meet those particular global shifts. Yeah, and there's a lot of ways we can go from there. You know, I start thinking about things as like, 
the whole experience, right? There's a set of features in the product, but that's not the whole product. There's an experience of how you interact with the product, how you interact with the rest of the company that really gets wrapped up in the value to the customer, right? Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing too, is I see a lot of, I mean, I wrote this post recently called We Need Fewer Product Managers. And what I was trying to say is we need, if, if you were in a company with 600 engineers and 60 product development teams, each one of those teams is not a quote unquote product, right? You don't need someone managing, you know, this idea that the product manager might be managing up and managing across and then, you know, writing user story. There, there's so much sort of clerical work involved with it too. And, you know, what we need a lot of are sort of product design thinkers or systems thinkers or service design thinkers. And so I think that in, in these organizations, there certainly is product, you know, from the traditional pragmatic marketing matrix of product. There certainly is that type of product. But then there's just a myriad of roles that sort of feel a bit like product management, but maybe tilt more towards experience design or service design or data science, right? Or optimizing flows. So I, at least I know when I was at Pendo, it was fascinating that, you know, an onboarding is a great example what touches everything in the company. From the minute you've talked to someone, I mean, depending on the style of company, you might be a complete, you know, low friction type company, but at a sort of B2B SaaS company that does enterprise sales or does those things, you're touching the salesperson, you're touching marketing, you're touching the content that marketing is putting out. Then you're trying to onboard yourself across the app. And I don't think that customers think to themselves, aha, I've bought the product. You know, I bought this pair of shoes and I'm walking home with it and I'm going to unwrap it, right? They're entering a relationship with your company. And it's almost like they're outsourcing some form of innovation to you. It's much more service oriented than it is traditional product oriented. And I think that a lot of the traditional product oriented thinking still seeps into how we're working when in actuality, it's much more of a sort of ecosystem or service ecosystem. So I think a lot of the stuff overlaps, but some of the stuff doesn't. And so I think that that's an important, you know, it just is adding layers of complexity to what a traditional sort of left right flow for product management new product release type diagram looks like i don't know does any of that resonate with you it does resonate with me and one of the things i wanted to talk further about was something you mentioned a little bit earlier too before i forgot it which was the shift from projects to values right or the shift from projects to missions right can you talk about that a little bit more because i think that ties back to it with what you were just talking about yeah i think that the I mean, let's just say that I think projects are a very human construct. I don't think projects are going anywhere. Like, I think that humans actually like to think of a beginning, middle, and end to something. And I think we love to celebrate. We like to pop champagne. We like to go out with the team and say, job well done. So I think that projects have some kind of role. The traditional idea of a project as an investment vehicle for a company that's budgeted beforehand and has some kind of, you know, beginning, middle, and end, and you deliver to scope, and there's an iron triangle, and you deliver that. I just don't think that that certainly has relevance if that's how you make your money. If you're a contractor, and that's how you're making your money, because you're going to get paid based on the constraints of that effort. But if you're a product company, if you're a big service, software as a service company, projects might be a vehicle for some level of investment, but Ideally, you're investing incrementally based on the value that you're creating. So a great example is, you know, a team is tasked with moving a particular metric and the company would say, you know what, as long as you're moving that metric, we're willing to keep funding your effort as a team. And for one or two months, it will just let it wash because we, we figure that you'll be getting into it and learning more in the beginning. But really by the third or fourth or fifth month, we want to see an inflection point in that metric. And you know what, if it's two years from now and you're still moving that metric, fine awesome. You know, keep on going. And so I think that that is a, most project managers would look at that and get confused. They would think, wait, is this a project or is this a program? How do we work with this? It sounds maybe more like discovery than it does an actual project. So I think that the shift is sort of from projects are still there and it's still a sort of unit of getting things done, or you could just say tasks, projects, you know, containable bits of work, but just Software as a service is an evolving thing all the time. Features come and go. You know, today's Zendesk is a great example. You know, what used to be done by a service agent or a support agent can now be done by AI or machine learning. So you could wipe away that 
feature, but the job remains. If you're thinking jobs to be done, the job of effectively, you know, servicing your customer needs will always be there. How Zendesk solves that problem will evolve or take Pendo. You know, the, the, the job of onboarding a customer will always be there. How Pendo solves that problem, you might wipe the slate clean next year. Who knows, you know, and, and so the way you view your investment changes, you can, in traditional project, you would say, product, you'd say, oh, well, we need to sunset that product. The investment is done. We're, you know, now we're going to put it on maintenance. But in this kind of new world, you're sort of, you already have to be thinking about it. Like, how will you disrupt yourself to do it? And so anyway, back to the question, I think, to keep it simple, all these things I'm talking about don't relate heavily in a project-centric world, <laughs> right? It's a much more fluid world that we're working in that takes kind of new ways of thinking and new ways of planning and new ways of budgeting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you talk about this metric and you also write about this concept of instead of thinking about managing output, you're thinking about driving outcomes, right? Which goes back to that metric. As long as you're improving that metric, you know, keep working on that, keep doing that. Yeah. And I think that one thing there is, and I, I've been doing a lot of work with teams recently about they get the outcomes over output thing. They get that. Everyone in the company is bought in. And then they actually have to get it done. And so what they realize, it's all a spectrum. It's all like impulse and response in the sense that there's a time span for everything. I mean, what I do today, a lot of product teams, what they do, I mean, there's that famous Jeff Bezos quote, like, are you surprised by what's happening right now? And he's like, no, we were putting this in, like the product decisions were made three years ago to make this possible. We're not surprised. Like the hard work was done a couple of years ago. And I think that that is true. You know, there's the, I think in terms of bets, like you can put big bets as a company that are kind of evolving, but those bets stay relatively constant over a couple of years, right? Or in case of Amazon, decades, right? But the beauty of the game we're playing is you can kind of alter how you're playing the game as you move, right? You've got big bets and then you've got smaller bets and you've got bets that last a week or two or three. So I think the nuance I've seen recently with the outcomes over output thing is it is logically super coherent. No one argues. I could go to a salesperson and say, hey, dude, do you want outcomes over output? And they'll say, damn straight, I do. Yet they will come back next week and say, could you build this feature to close this $100,000 deal? Right? So they get it. But the idea of kind of institutionalizing it in your company and, and shortening your feedback loops and figuring out these leading indicators and trailing indicators and all that stuff is complex. And I, I see actually a lot of teams kind of break apart a little bit. They give this a try and then they think, hey, we didn't get the answer. Like someone didn't prove that this worked definitively. And now our OKRs have all fallen apart and we can't do this outcome-driven thing. We need to go back to doing output-driven stuff because none of this worked. And to which I would say is that you never really approached it with the nuance it deserved from the beginning, right? Like let's use like, you know, Pendo example, you've introduced a new onboarding thing. You might not know whether that changes the game for all your customers for a couple months or quarters, but what is a leading indicator that can give the company confidence that the bet is worth it? And what would that leading indicator look like? It might just be like a handful of customers are eagerly waiting in line to try it and then try it for a week or two and then agree to, I don't know, pay you $10,000 more a month right on the spot. Like that's a great leading indicator. And I think the reason why it matters too is I believe that developers and designers really crave a sense of impact. They check out if they don't have this. And so as a PM, you need to frame with your team what a realistic leading indicator looks like so that people can celebrate and have a win. Otherwise, it's what I call the whirlpool of agile month and month and week and week and quarter and quarter go by and you're releasing product and no one sees whether it's working or not. And no one's having any wins. And then you get your best developers turn around and say, I don't know if anything I built ever made a difference. So there's a lot of human nuance to it as well. You can't go in and say outcomes over output. And then the next quarter, you know, oh, all our OKRs blew up. Well, you know, screw it guys. <laughs> so there's a lot more to it. And I think that that's, it's worth pointing out that nuance. Yeah, absolutely. So stepping back to where we started here, what else about the evolving role of a product manager? I mean, I think that the role of product management and org design are actually highly linked in the sense that I, here's what I've seen. Let's say you have no product thinking at all in your company. You're a very project-based shop. That's how you're thinking. You have project managers. No one's thinking about UX. No one's thinking about design. No one's thinking about whether it's working. So you hire your first PMs at that point. 
and that's a game changer, right? Like, oh, like we're, we're adopting product thinking. We're thinking about it this way. But here's what I would add is that companies now that are taking it to the next level have to start thinking about org design and product management in the sense that, and this is what I mean, is that once this product org becomes powerful in the organization, how it structures itself, you know, is it structured around locally optimized little products? Is it this kind of like mini CEO kind of effect in the company where people are like, well, it's, it's, they almost look at it like, well, there's support and success. And then on a pedestal, there's product. And so what you actually see, I think, is that you see this plateau in terms of product thinking in an organization that the org has to take it to the next level. It has to think about the whole organization as a product. Otherwise, what happens is, is you see that the product culture becomes stale in the organization and actually product becomes the blocker. And so to give you a story about that, you know, without naming a specific company, you know, what I saw in this particular company is they had great engineering chops, nothing broke. You know, they were able to move incredibly quickly. So engineering was not the blocker. Their marketing was really on point. Sales actually was doing super, super well. Then they started a great design practice and UX practice in the company. And it was the right fit for a product. But then as the years passed by, if you were to look at the blocker, it was product. Product was kind of stuck in an old way of thinking. Like product wasn't letting the teams try to achieve outcomes. Product was still feeding features to the particular teams. And there was a mini revolt in the company. So the company said, no, that, it's not working. Like we don't really need a PM on every team. Thank you very much. Our teams are completely self-sufficient. Like a UX person, these engineers on the team, we can do all the validation necessary. We can do all the data science necessary. You're not adding any value. And so back to this changing role of product management <laughs> is I would say that like, how product teams anticipate that change and start thinking about how they structure themselves. So to give you a concrete example, you might not have a PM on every team. You might start to have PMs who are more like evangelists for an actor or persona versus an owner of a product within the company. Or you might have a PM that does only growth, right? Across multiple different touch points or only onboarding across every touch point. So the sea change is that as you develop your org to that point and UX and design and engineering just totally start rocking it, you can't get caught in the past as a product team. I think that's really interesting to think about what you mentioned about having a, a PM that's an evangelist for a persona, right? That's an interesting thought process and approach. Yeah, I think that, and so this is, you know, take something like jobs to be done or whatever. Imagine, so you can organize a product team any number of ways, by touch point, by actor, by actor goal, or by kind of resource. So I've kind of laid this out. So an example, most companies arrange product teams by touch point. Think of the possibilities though. So you have, let's just say you have an actor who has a goal. So you have like accountants who want to do awesome bank reconciliations. I'm just thinking of like a really staid example, right? So that is an actor, an accountant with a goal, bank reconciliations. Now consider a modern company where bank reconciliations can happen across mobile, can involve machine learning, can involve data science, can involve multiple touch points, can involve training that the company offers, can involve conferences that the company offers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what if the PM was the accountant bank reconciliation evangelist or advocate across the company? So they were the one who specialized in knowing everything there is to know about bank reconciliation, evangelizing that goal across multiple touch points. They didn't need to be in the weeds with the teams because the teams are really self-sufficient. They didn't need a JIRA ticket writer. They did not need that person. They didn't need a user story writer. They didn't need a CEO whisperer. They didn't need any of those things. They just needed someone who was really good at what they do. I know a lot about bank reconciliations for accountants. And if you consider that role, is that still a product role? I think it is. So anyway, back to that thing. So you have actors, goals, touch points. A lot of companies just do touch points. Like European, you own this screen. So an example, let's just use Pendo as an example, is that the analytics at Pendo were very instrumental in targeting the onboarding experiences and the in-app messaging. So you could argue that you don't really need an analytics use case and onboarding use case. It was all about onboarding, right? Whether the analytics were meant for, you know, whether they were meant for making, so really it was product managers with the goal of making great decisions 
and then UX and product with the goal of onboarding people into their software effectively. That's decisions and then effective things. So anyway, I kind of got off track, but you get the idea, right? Like, no, I, I think that's a good track to go down too. I mean, you, you can think about it as having an, an actor and a persona and you can think of the PM as owning that and owning their jobs to be done, right? And developing right. empathy and understanding of that particular role. And I think that can be a lot more powerful than, say, having someone that owns, you know, mobile bank reconciliations versus web-based bank reconciliations. And now you have kind of what inevitably become disparate or slightly different user experiences for each of those things, right? Yeah, a great example would be even like Zendesk. I was involved in search there. But if you think about it, a data scientist or uh, a data scientist can only work with the domain that they're working in, right? So a support agent looking for help content is very different than you going to the Uber help app and looking for help content, different needs. Like as a support agent, you know what you're looking for, you know, search terms, you're in the context of a ticket. So there's a lot of data right there about your support ticket. Meanwhile, when you are a consumer on your Uber app looking for this for help content, we know about your location. We maybe know what's happened for your job. You know, we know the state of your trip different things like that. So an interesting thing there is that like the data scientist working on the search team, the temptation is to just platformerize search and just say, search is a platform and everyone, you know, you can just use it. But the reality is for an emerging use case, like support agents searching for tickets, you need a pairing. You need the person who's the expert at support agents. You need the person who's the expert at the touch point of the ticket view. You need the expert who knows a lot about how to do relevance in search. And you need an amazing search UX person at the same time who understands all those things. So that's an example for you where like, it's not just that. You need experts in actor, goal, touch point, and then supporting resources like data science and things like that. It's complex, man. These are the organizations we're working in. So it's not trivial. And if you go with a traditional org chart idea to these things, you'll eventually plateau you know, you won't get better. So talk to me, if you are a CPO right now, how would you do things differently than they're typically done? Oh man, I mean, there's so many good CPOs too. Like this is the funny thing about product is I think it's such an amazing community. And I kind of like what you're doing at the product craft site that you're doing. And anyway, it's hard to answer that question because I think that there's a lot of good models out there. Now there's a lot of people copying what other people are doing in the wrong context. You know, they're copying what they're doing for a consumer app and they're like a B2B pharmaceutical company and then they start coming in and they think that they're going to do AB tests on their 50 customers. You know, duh, right? It's not going to work there. But I think that if I was a CPO in this context, like I'll just use the example of these types of rich software as a service companies with I think that a lot of the stuff would go down to I'd have a lot flatter of a product management team. So I probably wouldn't have directors. I mean, I'd want career advancement, but I wouldn't create a hierarchy just for the purpose of career advancement. You know, like everything would need to map into customer value. And so what I mean by that, back to this example that I gave is I'd want to see some generalists, but I'd want to see people get really good at some things so they can provide value up to the highest level in the company. So I would start to think about some of these actor evangelists and goal evangelists and touch point evangelists type things. The other thing that I would do is I wouldn't hire associate PMs. If you're on a team, I think there's no insult worse than having skilled developers, and and this is for both parties, both the associate PM and the skilled developers, being thrown into this situation of a five-person cross-functional team, the skilled developers are there, the PM's learning, they are angry at the junior PM, and then the junior, and I've seen this, the junior PM just goes and quits product management. You know, they're just like, this is messed up, and I hate this, it wasn't what I expected. So I think a much better model is to have senior PMs with like an kind of like an intern or an associate, but when the team thinks of their PM, they say the senior person is their PM. So I think that a senior PM with one or two kind of assistants is not a great word for it, but kind of, you know, associates can lead 21 engineers. They can need like a lot of people if they have that help with data science, UX, agile coaches and stuff. So I think that's another thing too. I wouldn't create too much hierarchy And I would try to bring in the junior PMs in a safe way that didn't burn them out. So that's another thing that I'd think about. And then finally, I mean, it goes without saying, but I would try to de-pedestal product in the company. 
in my ideal company, it would just be that the CTO, CPO, and experience officer would either be amazing friends and work like this sort of amazing amoeba or something like that, or you would just have it in one role with a more sort of ecosystem-based thinking for it. Like I just, I don't think the org chart works in a lot of these companies where the CTO, the CPO, that just creates all this local optimization between the teams. So I'm not saying that if I was a CPO, I'd fire all those people, but I would look to find a way to to bridge those silos effectively. Because I think that that in sort of as companies grow, that becomes a huge issue. I wouldn't want there to be a divide between experience and product or product and technology because it is all kind of the product. Same thing with customer success. Like I think customer success is as much the product as product is the product. So I know it sounds like I'm saying I would have a huge power grab. That's not what I'm saying, but but (laughs) I would try to encourage ecosystems thinking in the company and not have cult of personalities. Because I think the cult of personality product manager, it's survivor's bias. We look at people, they're rationalizing the thing. Great example is technical debt. Like you make a couple risks with not paying down technical debt and something good works out. And it's like, ha it's great. We didn't work down that technical debt and this is what happened. But that's a point in time assessment. Talk to me in eight years. You know, Talk to me when your whole company has had to stop developing features for a year while you work out some shit, right? So I don't know. I think there's a cult of personality and product that needs to be, I think humbleness is, is humbleness a word? Yeah. Humility is a trait that's missing, at least in a lot of Silicon Valley product culture stuff that I think we need to address. More humble servant leaders, I think would be good. Yeah, I think that would be good. So (laughs) talking about humility as an attribute, what other attributes might be important in product managers? Or what are attributes do you look for in product managers when you look to hire? Okay, so I'm really biased, obviously. So you've been listening to the podcast, you can see like I'm biased in one direction. So here's the thing is it all is dictated by the culture of collaboration within the company. If you have engineers and UX and data science and everyone who can work together and carry forward things together, you can release a lot of the traits that are effective in some environments, but not in others. So here's what I mean. It's like, I know people who are great at kind of very intricate influencing stakeholder stuff, right? So let's say you're in that environment. In the right environment where product development teams are kind of empowered to drive an outcome, you don't spend a lot of time as a PM influencing up or across. You influence the people you're working with, (laughs) but they're doers. And honestly, influencing doers is a lot different of a task than influencing, you know, a CEO or whoever in the company. So I think that that's why I'm saying I'm biased. I think it has to do with like, if the company has product development teams that are autonomous and pushing goals themselves, I think the traits that I'm looking for are humility, empathy, systems thinking, you know, the ability to not just get caught in the here and now, some level of kind of stat statistical thinking or like some ability to kind of beat the cognitive bias. I want to see that they could beat cognitive biases. And so I think that that's super important. And that would be one of my interview questions. I'm not going to put someone at a whiteboard talking about how many airplanes are in the sky at any given time, because I guess you're trying to tease out a little bit of systems thinking and their ability to do that. But I'm looking for, do they know how to de-bias themselves in an effective way? I think that that's really, really important. And then I think that Stuff like, you know, communication skills, like do they understand the kind of concepts behind things like crucial conversations or psychological safety or getting to yes with yourself? Are they an effective communicator? And are they able to go into a situation with a burning idea and instead of just laying that on people, step back, frame the puzzle, let the team engage in the puzzle, and then present their option as a sample idea passed through the puzzle. And that takes a lot of patience and a lot of, I mean, my ideaism is so rampant in product communities that it's just crazy. And it pisses off your most valuable engineers and UX and designers. Like the idea that this person will come in and just prescriptively lay out an idea instead of saying like, here's how we would know what a good idea looked like, X, Y, and Z. And I invite, let's think about this together. Like, what are the traits of a good idea? Framing the puzzle that way and engaging the team is so powerful. Yet there's so many forces within, a great example is 
you know, let's say you have a CTO, you have other people inside the company and they're just sort of saying like, you know, what's on your roadmap, John? What's on your roadmap? What's on your roadmap? What's your roadmap? What's your great idea? Now, when someone says that to me, <laughs> I'm kind of like, dude, my ideas are as cheap as your ideas. Like ideas are pretty cheap. I could list 15 ideas that might, you might be persuasive to you, but they're all pretty cheap at this particular moment. So I'm hesitant to offer an idea like that, but at least for me, and this is why I'm saying biased, I don't give ideas a lot of credence. Like I think the collective ideas of a team framed well in the right puzzle with the right kind of guardrails and puzzle are such a powerful thing. So I don't know, kind of went on a rant about that stuff, but I think that those are the traits that I look for. And it's a super skill to have that really burning idea and lay back. Everyone wants to talk about and sell their big idea, put the PowerPoint up there and kind of whip through their amazing product strategy. Most product strategies I see are just success, like setting up success theater. Like there's no real deep strategic thought. I think someone like Simon Wardley or other people doing like real deep product strategy work, I think that there's a lot there. But most product strategies I see are just justifying something that the company already wanted to do. No one sits through that presentation and says, oh my God, you've given me new data or you've rocked my world. Everyone's like, oh yeah, it seems like our conversations have come to fruition. <laughs> so I don't know. You got me talking. I had too much coffee this morning. So yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that's great. I mean, <laughs> it's up, interesting when you think about, you know, the cheapness of ideas, but at the same time, you know, the ideas that come out of the collaboration of a team are much more valuable, right? I mean, it's your third, fourth, and fifth ideas, right? It's that thing where you... And that's, I guess, what creative and positive tension is about between people on a team too. It's like the willingness not to hit that first or second idea and someone to say, we have to converge right now because we have to go and report what our roadmap is going to be. And I mean, that's, that's the dance of quarterly OKRs, which is just kind of crappy in my sense is quarterly OKRs are no real better than annual plans. I think they help people, people stay on track. But if you talk to people who are doing OKRs, the actual users, which in my sense are the people who are offering their OKRs, they just feel rushed and they feel that they're making shit up half the time, right? So I think that that's an example of like creative tension and messiness allows people not to be forced to prematurely converge. You can let ideas simmer for a little while without saying, Oh, seven days to the end of the quarter, I have to dream up all my projects for the next quarter and put it in a big spreadsheet with everyone else's stuff so that we can plan. That's not very agile or lean at all. You know, that, that's kind of, I don't know, you got me thinking about OKRs. Don't get me started. <laughs> I've had my thoughts on that. Maybe that can be a <laughs> discussion on the future podcast. You know, yeah. there's a little bit about, you know, OKRs, the Spotify model, right? We could go into that probably for another hour. So talk about trends you see in the next couple of years that you think might affect product management. Are there anything out there that you're like, ah, oh, this is something people I, need to think about? No, I mean, I've kind of talked about it. I just think that, I mean, let's just take something super simple, right? Like the, something idea of like interfaceless or voice you know, oriented interfaces. Again, it's what I was talking about before, like layer that across the org chart. So I think about in terms of dimensions of complexity, right? You've got an optimization problem, which is your organization. And so you're a project shop doing, you know, government contracting. That's, there's a couple dimensions there, but it's, you know, the iron triangle, it's scope and quality. You've got to deliver it and you've got to do these things. So anything that's going to layer complexity across an organization, like oh crap, we have this new interface that you speak to and that can access all the resources of the company. Oh no, <laughs> how are we going to handle that, right? So, so that's in the sort of technology stuff, which is kind of a no-brainer, but I like to think about how it relates to the org chart and how it relates to that stuff. I think that what you're going to see just from the product side of it is just, I don't know, man, something's happening. There's so many SaaS companies which are selling to other sort of similarly staged SaaS companies and kind of, I don't know, I like wouldn't say like bubble or whatever, but it just seems like the time when you could basically have, it's just so easy to get up to speed for some of these products, especially with some of the services that are available through like cloud providers or Amazon or whatever, that like the thing that you spent a year doing five years ago, some team can just look at it and be like, oh, we're going to put together these like services that are available and we can just blow that product out of the water. So the whole idea of like how quickly products are being commoditized and like what was a cool crop of SaaS product ideas five years ago 
then they're selling to the other crop of SaaS providers. So like the Marcom products are selling to the analytics products, are selling to the, the sales optimization products that are selling to the content optimization products, are selling to the monitoring products, are selling to the, sla- like the chat products. Something has to happen there. Something has to give at some point. So that's, that's something that I'm interested in and seeing what's going to happen there. You know, is it just like, is Salesforce just going to buy everyone or what happens? And then what's valuable? And this is the thing too, is like a lot of vanilla SaaS products like that are in a space, I always ask teams, what really do you do really, really, really well that no one does really well? And if the answer is something like data visualization, I'm like, are you really the best in the world (laughs) at data visualization? Like that doesn't sound like something you do really, really well. And then often they'll sort of sheepishly say, well, like how we approach sales is kind of special, but no, maybe that's it, dude. (laughs) That's okay. That's a unique value prop for the company. Like, what are you doing? And they mentioned some super cool way that they're like building their funnel or whatever for sales. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But a lot of people, I think, persuade themselves that what they're doing is kind of leading edge product stuff. And man, it's moving so fast it will be hard to differentiate based on a certain set of things that you're doing as a business. And so, I mean, that's what I liked about Pendo in the sense that it does by mixing the onboarding stuff with the analytics stuff, you could go to Silicon Valley and like throw a stone and then get 20 analytics people. But the number of them that you could do where you could kind of fuel in-app messaging, you can't throw that. I mean, there's maybe more slowly, but you can't, you'd have to throw the stone like a couple miles, not like, you know, a football field or two. And I'm rambling about stuff. If that, if that is no, I think that that was that was a good point. I think you know the combining some aspects so that you have an area that's special, right, is important. And it's not just yeah. about being incrementally better, say, analytics play. It's about combining people's roles, personas, actors, like you were talking about, the jobs they need to be done, and applying a, a mix of technologies to do it better than other people do it. And disrupt yourself. I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to, um, this whole like innovation culture for large corporations, which is kind of a joke in many ways. It's like, it's how consultants sell training, really. But this idea, you need to disrupt your business model, which is ironic because those companies will spend, you know, millions of dollars and try to disrupt themselves. But the companies that are going to kick butt for decades to come are going to be companies that were just already doing that naturally right? They didn't need an innovation center. They didn't need that kind of nudge to do that. So it's the companies that see when they'll need to disrupt themselves and then resist the temptation to kind of plateau out and, you know, make investors happy in the short term or do whatever they need to do and be like, wow, we're going to need to disrupt this part of our business in two years, this part of our business in four years, and this part of business in six years. I mean, the classic example is someone like Amazon, but like, the ability to grow more conservatively at the rate that they've done, but then just go back and just redo is sort of phenomenal. I mean, you can't all be Amazon and not everyone is Amazon, obviously, but that's just the example that comes to mind. So that that leads me into an interesting question about culture. What's your perfect company culture? Oh, I'm terrible example of this. I mean, my perfect company culture is super flat meritocracy, I don't really believe in job titles. I don't really care about that. I think that it's about, I don't, I'm not really like a consensus driven person, but it's just about making, it makes participation very explicit. I mean, again, we all have our comfort zones. So like, to me, that's the dream. Like the things that piss me off are things like the elephant in the room. You know, I always sit there and be like, oh my God, the elephant in the room is that blank person is intimidating half the company and it creates this huge snowball of, local optimization. Why isn't anyone calling it out? You know, but maybe that's fine with everyone. But for me, I'm just like, that's the biggest bullshit ever, right? So I'm the terrible example when it comes to culture, because I'm definitely on one end of the spectrum of probably a combination of impatience and then being completely fine with a bunch of structures not existing. And then, you know, radical transparency stuff. And so like a great example is like salary transparency. I got in trouble once at a company for getting my like 360 review and then just being like, ah, I I work kind of across all teams. I'm just going to publish my 360 review for the whole company. You know, so I was like, on Slack, hey, check out my 360 review. Oh my God, that caused a lot of problems. Like, oh, if you shared your 360 review, are other people going to share their 360 review? Like, what is that going to say? So that level, you know, salary transparency, I'd be fine with. 
But I think that the observation I've had is that it's really about coherence. It's like, as a company, do you really express who you are and don't fake who you are? And that will attract people who want to play the game that you want to play at that particular company. And so there's a lot of stuff about like platitudes on culture. And, and then when you go in and you say, well, tell me stories about that. Tell me stories when you did that. And it's like, well, okay, well, there was this one time that we did that. <laughs> or one time we did this other thing. And so I think that where companies can do a lot for themselves in terms of retaining people and kind of attracting the people who will play the game that they play is allow themselves to be the weird, let your freak flag fly. If you're a company that actually like spirited arguments in the halls or things like that, just say like, we like spirited arguments in the the hall, right? I think the classic example is the Netflix culture deck. I mean, that turns a lot of people off, but by turning a lot of people off, it attracts the people that they want to do this thing. So anyway, I went from, I'm a bad example to the best company culture is a culture that's coherent. And so someone entering that culture, I think can navigate the culture without having coherence issues at every turn. Yeah, I I think that's an important point, right? I I was thinking the other day about this, like you can't create a company culture by writing something on the wall, right? You can't become, for example, there's a a trend to trying to become more customer centric, right? You can't write customer first on the wall and that transforms your company if inherently you make decisions that aren't in the customer's best interest, right? It's not a platitude. It has to be kind of inherently and inborn. And it's really, I think it's really hard to change who you are once you get to a certain size, right? That bet's already been made, so to speak. You know, like cable companies that are trying to become more customer centric. That's a huge challenge when their whole business model has not been developed in that manner. The company hasn't been grown in that manner. And so you can't just say, hey, we're customer centric. Yeah, I think that one thing is it's okay that companies die. Like companies are dying a lot faster than they are. And like by death, it could be like acquired or there's many versions of company death, but there's a book called Scale by Jeffrey, I'm forgetting his last name. But anyway, he's talking about like the lifespan of companies. The lifespan of companies has, has shortened, but companies are like organisms. They die, there's entropy in the system, they reach a point where any change is very, very difficult. And then they die, but like the matter of the company (laughs) becomes the fuel for other companies, right? And I think that, I mean, that's one thing, I really like what you said too, that it's like, there's so much out there in consultant land about saving companies. But as human beings involved in our economy, maybe it's okay that companies die. (laughs) and get kind of rebuilt. Maybe it's okay that we don't buoy up failing ecosystems that print money. And then, you know, we, we try to buoy them up because for whatever reason. So I don't know, that's another way to think about it as well. Like it's okay that companies die, but back to the culture thing, which I think is interesting is that I think about these things called promises and progress. And so my take is that companies make internal progresses and external progress promises external and internal promises to their employees between each other about everything. So customer centric is a promise. Are you promising it or not? Are you delivering on your promise or not? So the problem is, is just making too many promises in progress. That's what makes the culture start to fracture. So an example is like, we promise to be sort of product and user centric, and we're promising to try to grow or we're prom- it doesn't really matter. Like you can be making these multiple promises. Now, some promises are in opposition, but that's not inherently bad. It's okay to have a couple promises that are in opposition. But I think the thing is like the work is only a fraction of the promises you're making as a company. I promise to you to be, you make a promise to me, let's say you're my boss, you make a promise to me to help me grow my career. Or I make a promise to you, if you're my boss, to keep you in the loop. All these are promises. And so when you think about work or you think about the tickets in JIRA, that ain't nothing, right? That's only some promise to do a certain amount of work. The real promises are this sort of layered set of commitments we make to each other in a company. And then the reality is, is you can break some promises initially and people will write it off as, oh, well, we're trying. But if you break enough promises over enough period of time, then it causes, it starts to rot the culture of your company. And at that point, you need to decide to either make fewer promises. You only have one choice, (laughs) two or choice. You can either make fewer promises 
you can continue to atrophy as a company or you can change your promises, which is hard, right? Oh, we're going to be an innovation company is actually a change in promises to everyone in your company. It might be better to just be like, try to be the best Comcast we can be. That's maybe a better promise <laughs> than those other things. So I don't know. That's how I think about it. I don't know if that resonates at all, but that's how I've been thinking. Yeah, about I think it does culture. resonate. I would add to that. It's interesting to see promises and how they're kept or not kept based upon the situation, right? And what I mean by that, it's really easy to keep a promise when it has no negative impact on your bottom line, but take the customer first one, right? If something's in a customer's best interest, but it's going to cost you money, at least in the short term, and you decide not to do it because it's going to cost you money, then really your promise is hollow. Yeah. And I think though, the the point is, is the, like, this actually kind of goes back to what we were saying about incremental funding. It's in a weird, weird kind of way, which is it's very easy to make a promise like, oh, you say that's going to take 10 months. Oh, therefore, how many sprints is that? So that's 10 months, 40 weeks, $50,000 per two weeks. So we can do the math, right? So you do the math and you're like, thank you so much. I'm going to keep this promise that you're going to keep this project funded and you're going to keep your promise by getting it done. So the interesting thing is that's actually a really freaking easy promise to make. Now, the project might go over right? Which, which is different. But let's say you padded it and you knew you were going to get it done in 10 months, right? So the, one of the other funny things about the promises thing is, like you said, if we optimize to the easy promises, it doesn't mean even necessarily that there's not a lot of money at stake. It just means that how you frame the problem is very low risk to the people involved. Because what you see in a corporation is once you do that, the company is going to frame it as a success. It's very rare that in three years, someone goes back and says, Oof, that $20 million, and there's people still be at the company that they just haven't like vacated the company. Wow, that $10 million bet we made on that, real stinker, but we learned from it. That doesn't really happen. More like it's like, oh, we finished that $10 million bet and then these other opportunities became available and this is just the nature and the course of business. Like you create a revisionist history to cloud over the promise. So the point about that is that it's actually a lot easier to have a big upfront promise on millions of dollars to get the project done by a certain point and everyone kind of be absolved of the results (laughs) than it is to say, team, create these outcomes, you will keep getting money. Don't create the outcomes, you will not get money. (laughs) You'll then, but we promise to you that we will shift you to the next value stream that's awesome. We're not going to fire you, right? We promise that you stay employed at this company. You promise to try to chase this outcome. We promise to be transparent about whether our bets are working out. That's a very, very different set of promises than the project promise that we just described initially. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's very powerful too. So let's turn this back to John a little bit. You know, let's find out a little bit more about John. What's your favorite software product and why? My favorite software product and, and why? So, man, it just changes by the week and day. Like, I ditched my laptop and just got the iPad Pro and the pencil and a couple of drawing apps and things. And that suite of products I'm enjoying right now a lot. Like it's a, it's a form of expression for me that I didn't have before. I get really scatterbrained. And if I, I did this doodle challenge where I used hand drawing doodles for a hundred days and that was really fun, but I didn't draw as much because you're just using pen and this thing. So, but, but interesting story. So I went to the Ukraine to do a talk and I needed a computer. So I bought the iPad Pro and said, I'm going to just draw this talk on the airplane to the Ukraine because I love to draw. Note to self, like any drawing on a white background, don't do it unless you have an amazing screen, right? Because it just gets blown out and like thin lines don't really translate. But anyway, so I I did it all the way to the Ukraine and I did this talk. It's pretty good talk. And I'm like, this is the dream of the iPad Pro. Like I am the freaking commercial. (laughs) I bought the thing. I drew my talk go up, I walk in and like, I got like an Apple TV too. So I could just basically have it on stage and walk around if I want and tap it away. So it was like perfect. Nothing broke. And the irony was I'm coming back in the plane and I'm drawing again because I'm addicted to the drawing in the app. And someone taps me on the shoulder and said, I'm from Apple. I'm an engineer. I worked on that product. And I said, you know, it's amazing how when I'm drawing this thing works seamlessly. He's like, that's actually easy. It's that other thing that's really hard. You know, and he's pointing to like a certain smudging or a certain responsiveness of the pencil or something. It's like we spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours to get just that thing right. And he's like, I've been observing you do it and it it makes me happy to see you using it. And you're not thinking about it too much. You're just going. And I said to him, you know, I got it like four days ago, right? 
And we struck up a conversation across the whole talk back from the Ukraine. But I think that was like a, that's just one of those awesome product moments where I think like it's all working, but then man, the craft involved in doing that, like craft and commerce together. This guy was a crazy engineer, but he was very product focused too. So performance matters in, in your products, right? It's not just the interface. It is the interface, I guess. So I don't know. That's a story that I had about my favorite product lately. No, I think that is a good story. So we've covered a lot today. If you had to impart some words of wisdom to others in product leadership, what would they be? Well, first of all, I'm not a product leader. I'm like a product agitator, right? Like, let's, 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 <laughs> is I'm there a difference? Honest. I'm going to call the kettle black here. I mean, I, I've tried a couple of product roles and I think a lot about it and I love it and I love teaching it. But the leader stuff, you know, I haven't like led, you know, 60 person product teams. So just to be realistic about it. But I think that this idea of like serving as an example is talking to someone at team 60 teams and their product team was, they reached that plateau and then they pushed the limit. They're like, how do we take this to the next level? And so that would be my thing for product leaders. Like don't bound your vision of success for product into an org chart example that you're drawing from some 10 year old deck that someone gave you. Keep thinking about challenge a lot of the notions that you have about how the structure needs to work, who you're hiring, who needs to even have the word manager in their title. Maybe that, you know, I'm the agitator, right? So I'm going to tell you to do that stuff. But I think that it's happening out there because I get to talk to hundreds of teams. And so I can see it's happening that the best ones are doing this. So I can say like, disrupt yourself, disrupt your own version of how product management has to work in your organization, or it will be disrupted by the people who are disrupting it naturally. I don't know. That's my closing quote. <laughs> okay. Well, one final question for you as yeah. a product agitator and also a leader, whether you want to be or not. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a thought fast follower, by the way. Like there's real like thought leaders, like ideas are cheap, but I mean, the leaders are out there, but I'm a pattern matcher. I'm a professional pattern matcher. That's professional. Pa- I like that thought fast follower that <laughs> I haven't heard that before. That's a good one. So three words to describe yourself, John. Something will happen because <laughs> something always does happen, right? Like you can get caught up in the planning of it, but I think that attitude, that sort of wait and see experiment attitude is sort of sums me up. Like something's going to happen. We'll figure it out. That's um, awesome. Well, thanks, John. This is great. Sure. Yeah. Happy to be on the podcast. And if anyone wants to connect with me, you know, I do the Twitter thing a lot, have a newborn. So I, Twitter is maybe still like 80% replies that I can get back to people, but every other form, it just shows in a washout, which forms of media win, like LinkedIn, I, whatever. I can't do that. And email is pretty touch and go, but Twitter, at least it allows one hand use, which is great when you have a newborn. So, you know, swiping works out really well. Yeah, connect with me if you have any questions about any of the the gibberish I talked about on this uh, podcast. Awesome. And do you want to share your Twitter handle here? Oh, yeah. John Cuttlefish, like C-U-T-L-E fish. Don't, I don't know. It just seemed good at the time. (laughs) So. Well, thanks, John. All right. Yeah. Great chatting with you, Eric. 